Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. The Mountain States Policy Center is a new player in Idaho public policy circles. Founded earlier this year and based in Coeur d'Alene, the center describes itself as an independent think tank dedicated to promoting and advocating for free market solutions in Idaho, Washington, Montana, and Wyoming. And the center was out in the field earlier this year conducting a survey of Idahoans on topics including education and tax policy. I sat down this week with Chris Cargill, the president and CEO of the Mountain States Policy Center, to talk about the survey results and to talk about education topics that we will be discussing during the 2023 legislative session. Here's our interview. Well, Chris, thanks for taking some time this week to to be on the podcast. First off, just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Mountain States Policy Center. Well, thanks, Kevin, for for having us. First of all, a little bit of background myself. I was born and raised uh, in extreme eastern Washington, basically right on the border. Uh, Family had property on both sides of the border, so spent uh, probably 50% of my time, if not more, in North Idaho, playing around on Lake Coeur d'Alene and uh, the Ponderay River and and other waterways uh, in North Idaho. Uh, I'm a graduate of Gonzaga University with a degree in in broadcasting and, and political science and worked in television news for 10 years actually before I joined the think tank world in, in 2009. And part of the reason why I, I made the switch was because I didn't really like the direction that, that TV news and journalism was going. I felt it was more about the shock value uh, rather than actually informing people as to what was, what was going on. And so at that time, uh, Washington Policy Center, which is another free market think tank in Washington state, was hiring an Eastern Washington director, basically someone to help them get started on the east side of the state. I was lucky enough to be able to, to take that position and, and lead in that position for 13 years and then decided to make the shift uh, to um, the mountain states and specifically Idaho at the um, really the end of 2021 and into 2022. So had some key conversations with folks and said, we're thinking about doing this. Um, my plan has always been, we have some pr- uh, property in Hayden and my wife and uh, myself, we've, we've always uh, said that uh, in the next, hopefully the next few years when our house gets finished there, we'll be moving there pu- uh, full time. Uh, so what I want to make sure is that Idaho does not go the way of some of the other states in terms of some of the bad policies that, that states don't seem to be learning from. Uh, and what you're seeing happen is, as you well know, Kevin, is that people vote with their feet. If they don't like a policy in one state, they go to another state. And we're seeing people vote with their feet and come to Idaho. Uh, Idaho is the fastest growing state in, in the country. And we really felt like there was a need to have a free market think tank that could provide research and analysis and be sure to point out the reasons why Idaho and the Mountain States uh, region is so attractive to so many people. But from a, a lobbying and public policy perspective, this is a really different challenge for you as opposed to Washington State. I mean, Idaho already is a, a very conservative state, a very conservative yeah. state house. So what do you hope to bring to the discussion that isn't already being heard? Yeah, and you know, I, I need to just say off the top that as a C3, we, we really don't lobby. Mm-hmm, I mean, right. the IRS allows a, a very, very small amount of, of lobbying as, as part of your overall work. Uh, but in, in all, for all intents and purposes, we, we cannot lobby. 
um, as a C3. Now, if we had a C4 or other parts of the organization, then that, that certainly opens up more uh, possibilities. But our board and myself have made it clear that we're going to stay as a C3 um, and not get involved in the lobbying and the political back and forth. Um, you know, to, to your question, Kevin, I think that the challenge becomes um, when you have a state that is one party rule, the challenge becomes that then that party ends up shooting at each other and not getting the, the things accomplished that it needs to get accomplished. And we've seen that in Washington. We've seen that in, in Idaho. We've seen that in many other states where you have um, essentially a trifecta of a one party leadership in both the, the legislature and the governor's office. And sometimes that means that instead of battling each other, uh, or excuse me, instead of battling the other side, uh, the political spectrum they and end up fighting, fighting within the party sure yeah let me um i, I love poll results so i want to <laughs> spend a little bit of time talking about your your poll and especially the results that you got in education yeah. let's start with kind of the top line results um overall you had 60 percent of respondents say that they rated idaho schools as either fair or poor yeah. But you also had 81% of these respondents saying that they supported the recent funding increases in education, even 77% right. of Republicans saying that. So I'm kind right. of wondering if you feel like there's a disconnect there between people's satisfaction with education, but their willingness to see money put into education. Well, I think it's a, a good uh, point, Kevin. I mean, look, the, uh, this poll that, that we took, I, I think it really highlights something that I think a lot of us all know, and that is that we've been told for a long time that we need to put more money into K through 12 education. I think the question becomes whether that actually makes the most sense, whether it results in an increase in educational outcomes for kids. I mean, we've we've seen kind of the same results in, in national surveys as well. In fact, uh, the Gallup organization uh, put out a poll earlier this year that said that 55% of Americans are either somewhat or completely dissatisfied with K-12 K education. But then if you ask them about their own child's education, 48% express some satis uh, satisfaction. And then if you ask them about what their concerns are, it's about curriculum or it's about lack of resources or it's about political concerns. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of uh, confusion sometimes among the pu public about a how much schools how much money schools actually have to work with the resources that they have and then b the kind of results that we're seeing uh, and then c you know they're they're told all the time that we need more more resources and so I don't think it's a big surprise uh, that people say hey let's put more money in, into K through twelve education I mean it seems like every August we see a story on the local news about Mrs. Johnson or Mr. Smith having to go to the grocery store or that or Staples or Office Depot and buy their own school supplies. And parents see that and they respond. Another result I wanted to ask about, you, you asked uh, respondents to talk about school choice and you found support uh, for school choice, but you had 35% of the respondents say that they really had no idea what you were talking about in terms of school choice. What was your reaction to that? I was surprised, um, you know, <clears throat> but I think it, it really highlights something that I think some of us that are working in this world or politicians uh, don't really realize sometimes until it's too late, and that is we're very insulated. 
We don't get out in the public. You know, we're we're the policy folks. We're the policy wonks. We uh, we kind of nerd out on this this stuff, and we think, well, everybody should know what school choice means because we know what it means. Mm-hmm. Most parents don't know what it means. Most parents are busy. They they're running their business, or they're trying to get their kids to soccer practice, or 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 just take care of everyday life. They don't have time to get involved in the politics uh, of it and the name calling and whether you call it school choice or vouchers or education savings accounts or tax credit scholarships or whatever whatever you call it. Um, parents don't really understand uh, what it is that we're referring to. Um, and until then, I think sometimes they just say, you know what, I'm gonna withhold judgment until I know. So I think it, it must change your approach from an advocacy perspective when you're dealing yeah. with a public that is still trying to figure out what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, look, uh, there is when you have a more than a third of survey respondents say that they don't know what it is, uh, that that puts the onus not only on us, but on legislators to define what you're talking about. I mean, if a legislator is going to introduce a school choice piece of legislation or or uh, tax credit scholarship or ESA or whatever it is, you have a responsibility to explain that to, to citizens so that they, they understand. I mean, the, the Empowering Families uh, grants that the, the legislature and the governor put together in, in the past year or so, that's a perfect example. I think a lot of people support that. A lot of people signed up for it, um, but not all may understand that it is in essence a kind of a, of choice option mm-hmm. that's available for parents out there so um when you get involved and when you you really understand the the policy i think you end, end up supporting it but there's a lot of confusion about what the, what the actual policy is and i notice when your group makes recommendations on school choice when you've been writing about school choice. You talk a lot about education savings accounts, kind of like what we've seen in Arizona. You've talked about scholarship bills. You don't mention vouchers. And I'm wondering, is that a conscious decision? Is that messaging? Or I guess I'm wondering, is that framing? Or or do you have legitimate policy concerns about a straight up voucher bill? Well, I appreciate that question. And look, you know, I think there is a big, big difference between vouchers and between education savings accounts. Now, some people say, no, there's no difference whatsoever. And I, I would just argue that there, there's a very large difference in that when you hear about vouchers, you think, okay, that's the money that I just take to send my kid to a private school. That's not what an education savings account is. Uh, as a special needs parent, for instance, I have a son who's autistic. We could use an education savings account to supplement his public schooling. Um, and a lot of parents could do that. And that's why you saw states like Arizona and a few others start out with special needs kids to see, okay, is this gonna work having an ESA for a special needs kid? Does that mean I'm gonna take my son or daughter out of public school? Not necessarily. I may use that ESA or a a chunk of that ESA to get them extra language help, to get them extra tutoring before or after school, to get them more supplies here at home. Um, There are many, ESAs is kind of an, an overarching term to include a lot of different items and a lot of different things that parents could use the money for. Now, will some of them use it to send their child to a, a separate school? Yeah, there's a good chance that they might do that. Will most parents do that? No, the majority of parents that we've seen in other states don't use the money to send their child to a, a private school. They keep their child in the public school because they like the public school or they like Mrs. Johnson or they like Mrs. Smith and they have a relationship with those teachers 
But for the families that it's not working for, that the public school option is not providing what they need, this gives them another tool. And it's for us, it's all about educational outcomes. What is gonna increase the educational outcome for a child? Is it gonna be to keep them in this box that's not working for them? Or is it gonna be to allow them to try out different boxes to see what works best? And we think it's gonna be the latter. You've also, your group has been highly critical of Blaine amendments. I mean, the wording that I, I saw in one of your writings was that these amendments are an example of extreme anti-Catholic bigotry. And I guess I wonder if if the language is so objectionable, why isn't the debate about simply trying to repeal these amendments as opposed to uh, working on school choice options within you know the, the framework of these amendments being on the books? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, and if you would have asked me that five or ten years ago, I would have said, yeah, the language, the the concentration should be on trying to repeal those amendments. I think. The situation that we're in now, Kevin, is a little bit different because of what the Supreme Court has ruled out of the, the main case, specifically that if you're going to have a, a school choice program in your state, that it cannot be um, it cannot be restrictive in terms of where you take that, it, that money. It can't can exclude it religious right. schools. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And so I, to be honest with you, I, I, I really feel like in some of the, the legal analysts that I've talked to as well feel like these Blaine amendments that are on the books, not only in Idaho, but in other states as well, um, really have no teeth anymore because of that ruling. Uh, the basically the Supreme Court has said, if you're going to offer a school choice program, you cannot restrict it on religious grounds. Um, so I think we're in a different situation now, Kevin, than we were five or 10 years ago, where, yeah, the concentration five or 10 years ago should have been to repeal those amendments. Now, the, the amendments, I think, are essentially null and void. Um, and 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 really, the concentration should be on on providing more choices. So, in a nutshell, your view is that the blame amendments are bad, but they're moot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about school transparency because you asked a couple of questions on that, and so eighty-two percent of respondents like the idea of a, a transparency law that makes it easier to find financial information about local schools. But the support wasn't quite as overwhelming for the idea of having a state superintendent or a superintendent's office assign letter grades to the schools. What was yeah. your impression of both of those uh, results? Well, for uh, for some background for folks, as far as the Public School Transparency Act, uh, which is a, a publication that we put out uh, earlier this year, <clears throat> we you know, it's it, it's it's interesting because I ask folks when I go around and speak on education or talk to folks about education, if they read their school district budgets or if they know what's in their school district budgets. And most of them tell me no, because it's so overwhelming. I mean, as you know, Kevin, it's hundreds of pages long, sometimes depending on the school district that you're in. Lots of di different budgets. You don't know what budget is for what or what funds what or if if the teachers have enough salary and benefits, if the administrators have enough salary and benefits or maybe they have too much salary and benefits and where it's going. Is it getting to the classroom? So what we have said is, look, um, it's good to have that transparency out there in terms of the budgets. It's good that people can go and read the budget and look at the budget. But transparency doesn't mean much if you don't understand it. And if you, if you're not a policy wonk, again, like you or me, you read through those budgets and you don't know what they mean. 
And so what we're suggesting is that on the front page of their budgets, the school districts just put a one-sheeter, essentially, that has five key data points, uh, how much money that they're spending per student, what their total budget is in terms of, of all dollars, how much money that they're spending on administrator uh, salary and benefits, how much money they're spending on teacher salary and benefits, how much is getting to the classroom, and then hopefully we'll get to a point where you'll have results on there as well in terms of the educational outcomes of kids. And as you mentioned, when we asked folks if they would support that, 82% said yes. So I think there's the transparency piece. And then there's the other question that you asked Kevin about um, the second question we asked in the, the poll. The letter grades. And that is, yeah, the letter grades, whether you would uh, favor an A through F scale. I mean, look, Every, it seems like every state, every school district has a different mechanism whereby they tell you whether the school is performing. Some say they're overperforming or underperforming or or some get some distinction from the state office of, of uh, public instruction. Uh, some get some distinction from the state school board. So it depends on which state you're in. But what we've seen in Florida and a few other states as well is that a, a system that is easy to understand, like an A through F grading scale, can help identify the schools that need the most help. And so if a school has, a, let's say, a D on the, on the grading scale or an F, then you know that that school needs some extra concentration. Um, in some respects, some states like Idaho kind of already do this in terms of the um, in terms of the uh, achievements that they're they're making public, but again, if if I'm a parent, I don't necessarily understand the language that the that the state superintendent might be using, and so it would be much easier on uh, from my from my perspective as a parent to say, okay, my school, my school it gets a B, my school gets a C. Everyone knows what A through F means, and it would be up to state lawmakers and the school board and the. Uh, superintendent to figure out okay what the scale is um, but I think the the whole point here is to try to make it easier to understand how your school is performing but no matter how you create that no matter what kind of scale you use at some level there's a little bit of subjectivity to it it's not as objective as putting the financial oh, sure. information out so yeah. Do you think that maybe is part of the reason why some folks are maybe a little bit more concerned about that as opposed to Oh yeah, I, I think I, yes. I think you're exactly right. It it is. It can be somewhat subjective. You're you're correct, and I think that's probably why you see only sixty percent support. But I would say sixty percent support is is almost a super majority mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, um, but yeah, I mean, when you're comparing it to the the Public School Transparency Act at eighty two percent support, of course, that's overwhelming, um, and maybe a little uh, less so on the uh, uh, grading of public schools. I will say, Kevin, I'm looking at the results right now, and it's interesting, um, you know, you asked me about the school choice numbers um, and about some of these grading and transparency numbers. One of the other things that really fascinated me is if you look at the school choice numbers, um, I'm not sure if you've got it there in front of you, but what was remarkable to me was the fact that school choice was popular among independents and Republicans, not so much necessarily among Democrats, not a big surprise there. But if you look, if you really dig into the numbers, the education savings account idea has the least amount of support in North Idaho. Huh. In the Boise area, Ada County, it has almost 50% support. Huh. 
Uh, Idaho Falls, 53%. Twin Falls, 61%. But if you look at North Idaho, it's only 40%, which that was one of the things that jumped out to me when I was reading through the numbers. I would have thought it would have been a little bit lower in the Boise area right. and then maybe more so in, in North Idaho. <laughs> no, that... <laughs> That, that is interesting. And, and let's loop back to that. What, what do you think is going on there? I mean, you're in North Idaho. You, you know, what do you think that says? Well, you know, North Idaho politics, as, as you and I both know, and as we've discussed, is much different than, than other parts of the state. And so I think that maybe is part of it. I think that uh, there are some parts of the state that they they think about um, education savings accounts and maybe the private school option that may come with that. And they think, well, I don't really necessarily have a lot of private school options here. So what's the point? Um, And, you know, that's an argument that's been going back and forth is that the rural communities don't necessarily have those private school options. Um, And at the same time, if the rural communities don't have the private school options, then the public schools really don't have anything to worry about in the rural communities because they're going to be the only choice. From our perspective, that's not going to be what happens. If we open up education savings accounts, you're going to see more options pop up in some of the other areas. But right now, there isn't necessarily a market for it in some of these more more rural communities. Whereas in Boise, uh, there are some private school options. So I think that might be part of the reason why you're seeing uh, those splits. Okay. You started in the beginning talking about your overarching goal, your group's overarching goal is to try to eliminate or alleviate some of the intra-party tensions on public policy issues. There's a lot of intra-party tension right now on education issues in Idaho. How do you how do you seek to try to overcome that? And are folks so hopelessly mired in various camps on education issues that that's impossible to do right now? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And and to be honest with you, I I don't necessarily have the answer. I mean, we're seeing it in other states, too, where the the squabbles between the parties are stopping some really good policy from being from being put forward. I I will say this, um, as far as school choice and, you know, let's just say education savings accounts is the model that legislators go with. uh, I hope we don't get into a situation where legislators say, well, if it's not 100%, I'm not voting for it. You know, that is that is the exact wrong approach from our perspective, because if you look at Arizona and you look at other states, they didn't start out with the whole enchilada. I mean, they, they started off with special needs kids or they started off with this or they started off with that and they built the program over a, a period of years. They didn't just overnight decide to pass education savings accounts. But to your point, Kevin, about inter-party squabbles, you know, Arizona's legislature is basically 50-50. That's right. And yet they were able to pass education savings accounts with bipartisan support. And so it's it's there, there really should be no reason why Idaho legislators can't come together with some plan. Pick your favorite topic, whatever it is, tax uh, uh, credit scholarships, ESAs, whatever the, the setup might be, and move forward with it. And, you know, I know that uh, one of the questions you might ask and some of the questions that we have in in public is, well, isn't that a a violation of the state's constitution uh, because of the the concentration in the state constitution specifically on funding public schools? I would just say, look at what the West Virginia uh, State Supreme Court just ruled. 
They said that there's no reason why states can't do both things, that they're not mutually exclusive, um, that school choice can work in cooperation and coordination with public schools. It all depends on how legislators set it up. It all depends on the program. But if you're trying to get 100%, you might end up getting 0%. And that would be my concern. One last question. So it's for your group, it's your first session of advocating in Idaho. For a lot of legislators, it's their first session in the state house as well. So what is your first year objective? I mean, how would you what would make for a successful session from your perspective in, in 23? Well, I think uh, from our perspective, uh, just a successful session would be in making sure people are informed about what's going on. And I think sometimes there are some groups out there that inform and then just hit people over the head and call them names and make it very, very difficult to get uh, things accomplished. Um, you know, look, we're a limited government organization. That doesn't mean that we have zero government. And what I've said all along and what our organization believes full well, you know, if we're talking about schools, for instance, school choice does not mean shutting down public schools. Limited government does not mean getting rid of all government. We have to have some government. I mean, Thomas Jefferson talked about the, uh, if men were angels, then government wouldn't be needed. Men are not angels. We do need government. The question is, what is the most efficient, most limited form of government that we can have? And from our perspective, we should be taking a look at things from that point of view. Um, so I would think a, a, a special session, Kevin, to answer your your question is going to be a making sure people are informed but b making sure that there's a dialogue going on about some of these topics and i think that the kind of the nasty divis divisive language that has been used before is not helpful to to advancing some of these issues well chris thanks for taking time this this week to kind of set the stage for the section we may need to catch up after it's done to see how it uh, how it turned out from your point of view Thanks for thanks Absolutely. for coming on. Thanks very much, Kevin. Again, that was Chris Cargill, the president and CEO of the Mountain States Policy Center, an independent free market think tank headquartered in Coeur d'Alene. If you want to read more about the center's Idaho poll and get a sense of the center's policy ideas for the 2023 legislative session, Sadie Dittenberg has some in-depth coverage of that. Just find that story at idahoednews.org. And while you're there, you'll find plenty of other news uh, over the past few days. You know, Chris and I were talking about how uh, panhandle politics can be uh, kind of interesting. Well, this would be the point in the podcast where North Idaho College enters the chat room. I have the latest on the turmoil at NIC, the turmoil on the Board of Trustees and how that might affect the college's accreditation. I also take an in-depth look at the terminology, the vocabulary surrounding the debate over school choice, and namely the V word, vouchers, and how that has become a very loaded and very uh, uh, polarizing term in the school choice debate. I have uh, a closer look at that. That's my weekly analysis piece from last week. It published on uh, Thursday. You can check that story out at idohednews.org. Other news that you will want to catch up on, Darren Savan takes a closer look at what's happening with a new rural educator incentive plan. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in the program, and Darren breaks down those numbers. 
Carly Flandreau takes a closer look at what's going on in the Idaho Falls School District after uh, voters rejected a $250 million bond issue. You can find all of those stories and more at idahoednews.org. And you can follow us over social media. Um, yeah, we're we're still on Twitter. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can say that this week anyway. We're still on Twitter at idahoednews. Uh, you can find tweets to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking items. You can find us on Facebook. I think we can safely assume Facebook is going to be around for a while, and we will be there. That's a good place to comment on our stories. And you can always follow us at the homepage at idahoidnews.org for the latest in education policy and education politics. I want to take a second here uh, to wish you all a happy holiday season and to thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been really fun this past year to have uh, interesting folks come on. Uh, and hopefully that has translated into interesting interviews and informative interviews about the issues that uh, are central to Idaho education. It's been fun putting this together. I hope it's been uh, fun to listen to and I hope it's been useful to you. And we'll be back doing more of this in 2023. We're going to take some time off, uh, not just on the podcast, but we'll take some time off on the, on the website take a few days off, uh, recharge for 2023. So in the meantime, I hope you all have a very festive holiday season. I hope you have some time to recharge and to celebrate with those closest to you. We will be back on this podcast in a couple of weeks, uh, getting ready for the 2023 legislative session. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.